0: 10, Mark chapter 10. And we are going through the gospel of Mark. And uh, this morning, Jesus in this particular chapter is going to teach some, some truths. Now, you know, he teaches nothing but truth, but it's the way he does it here in chapter 10. He uses, you know, as a master teacher, Jesus would use different ways to teach God's word. He would use symbols, he would use miracles, he would use types, he would use parables, proverbs, and paradoxes. A paradox is a statement that seems like a contradiction, and yet it tells a rational truth or principle. And he teaches by paradoxes here in chapter 10. A paradox, for example, like, when I am weak, then I am strong. The first shall be last, the two become one. And that's the method that Jesus is going to teach here in Mark chapter 10, in five different incidents. Jesus does that, like I said, he teaches in Paradoxes here in chapter 9. Now, he could have preached long sermons, but instead he taught important lessons that can be taught in five short, seemingly contradictory statements. Now, the public ministry of Jesus is in its last stages before the crucifixion. And chapter 10 records a number of incidents that took place during Jesus' return to Jerusalem for the crucifixion. So let's begin with verses 1 through 12 of chapter 10, where Jesus here is going to teach on divorce. And the paradox is to become one. Beginning in chapter 10, verse 1. Then he, that is Jesus, arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And multitudes gathered to him again. And as Jesus was accustomed, he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They were testing him. And he answered and he said to them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter, again about divorce. And so Jesus said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. As usual, people gathered around Jesus again. And he did what he was used to doing. It says in verse 1, he taught them. Now, Jesus faced the subject of divorce when he was headed back to Jerusalem for the last time. Divorce then and now has always been a, a touchy subject, and especially with those that are divorced. Today, the divorce problem is worse in the church than it was in society not that long ago. The frequency of divorce in the church has really hurt the church's testimony. And many try to deal with the problem by tolerating and justifying divorce. But that only makes the problem worse. Now, Jesus raised the standards when it came to divorce. But a lot of churches are lowering the standards. The the, the Pharisees asked Jesus here... Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, in Matthew 19, 3, Matthew adds, For just any reason? In other words, they asked him, Is it lawful for a man to to, to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, it was a trick question asked by the Pharisees. They were trying to get Jesus to say something against the law so that they could arrest him. And you could be sure that whatever Jesus said was going to upset somebody. Because divorce was a very controversial issue with the Jewish rabbis. And in that day, there were two opposite views when it came to divorce. And which view you took would depend upon how you interpreted the words given in Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4. Speaking about divorce, Moses said, you know, you could write a bill of divorcement based on some some cleanness. Now, what did that mean? Now, the followers of Rabbi Hillel were more liberal in their interpretation and allowed a man to divorce his wife for any reason. For example, if he didn't like the way she cooked, he could divorce her. Or if she put too much salt on his food, she could, he could divorce her. Or, or if she burned his food or whatever. You know, whatever flimsy, you know, cause or, or, or excuse, you know, he, he could write her a bill of divorcement. But then in the school of Rabbi Shammai, he, this, he was a lot more strict. And he taught that the critical words in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 about some cleanness, the some cleanness to, to, to Shemai referred only to premarital sin. In other words, if a newly married husband found out that his wife wasn't a virgin when they married, then he could divorce her. But now, Jesus as usual, here in this chapter, Jesus as usual ignored the debates, he ignored the arguments. He, avoided the, he, he ignored the, the, the popular opinions and what people thought. And you know what? We need to do the same thing today. All right? He focused their attention on what God's word said. In other words, it's not about what you think or what you reason uh, uh, it is uh, be a good reason for divorce. It's what God says. It's always what God says. What are the biblical grounds for a man to divorce his wife? Well, Jesus explained that Moses gave the divorce law for this reason. Moses gave the divorce law because of the sinfulness of the human heart. And that sinfulness is hardness. It's unreasonableness. In other words, it's it's usually because of a hard heart that people end up getting a divorce. And that is, they they don't want to forgive. They don't want to forget. They don't want to move on. They don't want to work through the difficulties that they're going through. They'd rather walk out than work out. And, And that's the reason that Moses wrote the Bill of Divorcement. The law of Moses protected the wife by keeping the husband from divorcing her for every petty little thing that he could think of and abusing her like an old shoe instead of treating her like a human being. And without the bill of divorcement, a a woman could easily become a social outcast and she could be treated like a harlot and no one would want to marry her and she would be left out in the cold. So, also, understand that by allowing this bill of divorcement, God was not saying divorce was okay. God was not allowing divorce or approving of divorce or encouraging it. Or I should say, he, you know, he, was, he allowed it, but again, it was because of the hardness of the, of, of the man's heart. But he wasn't approving of it by this, and he wasn't encouraging it. Instead, he was wanting to control it, making it harder for men to divorce their wives. And he put regulations around divorce so that the wives wouldn't become victims of their husbands' flimsy excuses. Marriage is the most intimate union in the human race. Because God's word says the two become one flesh. We don't know how it happens, but we know it does because God's word says so. All right, this, this, this becoming one flesh between a husband and a wife, this isn't true of a father and a son or a mother and a daughter. And I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, a bad husband cannot be a good man because he fails in the tenderest duties and must be bad at the heart. Now, the spiritual factor in marriage is what's most important. Because marriage is a spiritual union. We, we, we say the vows before God. But the emphasis here is, is a physical union. It says the two become one flesh. Not one spirit. They become one flesh. It's two people living one life. And because marriage is a physical union, only a physical cause can break it. Two things that, that 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 break a marriage death, Romans chapter seven verses one through three and fornication matthew five thirty two and nineteen nine and Jesus warns us that man cannot separate those who God has joined in marriage so again it it you know it it's let me just double check some if i you know what? I skipped some stuff here. I should... Man. Okay. Let me go back to where... So I'm cleaning. to clean the now, let's See, then you can divorce it. Now you should... Okay. See, what are the grounds for biblical divorce? Okay. We've got the sinfulness and hardness of heart and human heart. Bear with me here a minute. I got. Well, I don't know how I got two pages stuck together Okay. All right, so after he gave the, the grounds here again of, of again nullifying the husband's flimsy excuses, Jesus took them back before Moses to the account of the original creation here in verses 6 through 8, which is in Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. He's taken them back to Genesis, he's taken them back to the beginning. Notice he says, Have you not read? That's always the problem. Instead of listening to opinions and arguments and debates, have you not read? In other words, what does the Bible say? Jesus is telling the scribes or the Pharisees, what does the Bible say about marriage and divorce? Because you see, it was God in the beginning who established the rules for marriage. Therefore, God has the, he's the only one who has the right to make the rules. And he reminded his listeners of the true nature of marriage. And if we remember these characteristics, we will know better how to build a happy marriage and a permanent marriage. The first characteristic is it's a divinely appointed union. Divinely appointed. It's it's, it's a spiritual union. Verse 6 says here, God established marriage. God gave away the first bride. God officiated at the first wedding. God wrote the book on marriage so only God can control its nature and its laws. No court in the land, no legislature in the land, no government in the land can change what God has established. Just because the court decides something, it doesn't mean it's okay. It doesn't mean it's biblical. What God has joined together, Jesus said here, let no man separate. No man, regardless of their title. No, 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 regardless of their power, or status, or position they hold in life. No man. God expects married people to practice commitment to each other and to stay true to each other. The second characteristic of marriage is the physical union. The man and woman become one flesh, verse 8 says here. It's two people performing together or forming together one man within the limits of this life in the flesh for this world. And even though it's important that a husband and a wife be of one heart and one mind, the basic union in marriage is physical. Again, it's the most intimate union in the human race because the two become one flesh. And so here's the third third characteristic of marriage. It's a permanent union, verse 7 says. God's original design was that one man, one woman spend one life together. And God's original design knows nothing about trial marriages, God's law requires that the husband and wife enter marriage without reservation and no prenuptial agreements. The fourth characteristic is it's a union between one man and one woman. Verse 6 says that. And then going back to the beginning. God did not create two men or two women for this union. Marriage between two men or two women or any other variation or combination are contrary to the will and the word of God. It's against nature. The demands by society to normalize these marriages are in direct conflict with God's word and with religious freedom. Too many people see divorce as an easy way out of a sometimes difficult situation. And sometimes marriages can become a difficult situation. And we can go through some very difficult times. And people don't take their vows of commitment to each other and the Lord seriously. And we need to understand that happy marriages aren't accidents. They just don't happen. We just don't happen to look out and, oh, we got a good one. They're not the result of right chemistry. They're not the result of all those stars all lined up with the moon and whatever else you want to think. They're not the result of compatibility or good luck. Now, some of those things may help, but that's not the basis. I was listening to a program the other night where a guy met this girl and he says, oh, we hit it off so well. in in a week we were living together. I'd love to see where that's going to end up in a year or two. But it's because we just did, we just hit it off. Let's see how long you hit that off. Let's see how long that, that how happy you'll be all the time. And, and let's see where that philosophy or that thought carries you through the difficulties. Good marriages are the result of commitment. Love, mutual respect, sacrifice, and hard work. And especially in those difficult times. It's easy to live like that when things are going well. When everything is just, you know, just rolling down the road with no bumps. But it's when the tough times come. Where that commitment comes in. And we continue to do what God has called us to do in spite of the difficulty. Because it's, it's because God's called us to do that. And he didn't say just when things are going well. This is the way we're to live all the time. And then Jesus privately explained more of the matter about this question of divorce to the disciples according to verse 10. Who figured by now, it says, if this is the case, it's better not to get married. That's what they said in Matthew 19.10. And then Jesus goes on to say that if you mar- remarry somebody, other than for the reason of fornication, would make that person guilty of committing adultery, which is a serious thing. Now Jesus moves on to children, and, and, and Jesus, to, to Christ and children. Look at verses 13 through 16 now. Here's the, the paradox. Adults shall be children, beginning with verse 13. It says, Then they brought little children to Jesus, that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as little children will by no means inherit it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them and blessed them. This teaching about children, this, this talk about children and their relation to the kingdom of God rightly follows the teaching by Jesus on divorce. Why? Because children are always the first and the saddest victims when it comes to, to divorce. When it comes to broken homes. Both women and children owe a lot to Jesus for coming to their defense. And unlike a lot of people today, the Jews then looked at children as a blessing and not a burden. A treasure from God, not a liability or a commodity. Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5 tells us that children are a heritage and a reward from the Lord. They're a reward. And when we bring children into this world, they deserve to have a mother and father throughout their lifetime. They deserve that. When little children were brought to Jesus to be touched by him, like in healing, the disciples scolded those who brought them to Jesus. The disciples were probably trying to protect Jesus from the crowd and didn't think about the children being important, which is kind of strange because they had already, Jesus had already showed how important he was uh, back in chapter 9, verse 36. It says that Jesus was displeased with this. It means he was angry, he was pained by what they had done. He said, let them come to me, don't stop them. Because the kingdom of God knows belongs to those who have the same characteristics of children. In other words, we must become like children if we are going to inherit the kingdom of God. A child is receptive, a child is trustful. And they act based on what they understand at the moment. No one can ever earn or deserve the kingdom of God. They have to receive it through the grace of God. And Jesus said in verse 15, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter in. They cannot enter in any other way but by becoming like a child. We enter God's kingdom by faith like little children who are helpless and unable to save themselves totally dependent upon the mercy and the grace of God. So now you can see why Jesus was so displeased and made it clear to his disciples, don't stop them from coming to me. As if to make his point about how strong he felt, he picked up the children. He laid his hands on them and he blessed them according to verse 16. Then Jesus goes on through 17 through 31 to teach the the rich young ruler, the first shall be last. The first shall be last. Look at verse 17 through 31. Now, as Jesus was going out on the road, one came running and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Uh, Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, take up your cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first. There were a lot of people who came to Jesus, but this is the only one who went away sad and sorrowful. He, you know, he was in worse shape when he left than when he first came to Christ. This man was young. He was rich. He had status. He had a lot of potential. He was a good man. He was a moral man. He had good upbringing and has enough spiritual sense. Notice at the beginning it says that he came to Jesus and knelt before him. But even with all of this, this young man's fine upbringing and upstanding qualities, his view of spirituality was very shallow. Especially his view of salvation. Because you see, he thought like many others do, that he could do something to earn And deserve eternal life. In Matthew 19, 16, he says, What good thing can I do? What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Notice, what can I do? And it was a common belief then, just like it is today, that it's it's the good things that I do that's going to get me into heaven. Most unsaved people and good people believe that when they stand before God, He's going to pull out the scales and he's going to add up the good things with the bad things. And if the, if the good things here, they rise up and they outweigh the bad things, I'm in. If the good outweigh the bad, I'm going to heaven. Now, this meant that this young man must have a shallow view of sin. He must have a shallow view of the Bible and of Jesus and of salvation. Because sin is rebellion against the holy God. So he thought, hey, what can I do to get into heaven? It seems that this man thought he could do a few good religious works and and that would make God happy and everything would be good between him and God and he would get into heaven. Now, Jesus didn't focus on salvation when he talked to this young man. He focused on the word good in verse 18. He said, no one is good but one. And that's God. He said, do you believe that I am good? Therefore, I am God. And Jesus said to him, you know the commandments. And he said, hey, I've done all of these things since I was a little boy. He must have probably felt pretty good. He said, but what do I still lack? He sensed something was lacking. And Jesus gave him the answer. Look at, let's read verse 21 again. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, notice, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, take up the cross and follow me. He refused the invitation to follow Christ. He wasn't lacking anything materially, but what he was lacking was this—what was that spiritual dimension in his life. And so he refused to follow Jesus, and he chose to hang on to his stuff, his possessions, rather than have treasure in heaven. Now, here's the saddest part of this meeting with Jesus. Unless this rich young man turned to Jesus Christ before he died, then he died without salvation. And he would be one of the richest, nicest men in hell. There are going to be a lot of nice, good people in hell. Because they rejected Jesus Christ and his salvation. And thought that they could get into heaven because of their goodness. Their, 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 the, the good things that they did. Here's the point. Love for God must come first. Now, Jesus is not going to necessarily ask you, okay, you got to get rid of everything before you come and see me, before you come and follow me, that is. You got to just, you know, get rid of all of it. No, that's not his intent. But are you willing to do that if it's so, if so Jesus, you know, asked you to do that in such a way in ministry? Am I first in your life? Can you follow me? And yet give up things if you need to. But this man chose to hang on to his possessions. You can't follow Jesus Christ without paying a price. And that's what he said. He said, come, take up your cross and follow me. And that was, that was the, the, the point that he was trying to make to the man. Now, this is a parable on the joy of obedience and the tragedy of disobedience. It says he went away sorrowful. You see, his problem was the idea of going to heaven was based on a works approach and not faith. And what he was trying to do was to get into heaven on his own terms. That's what Cain tried to do at the very beginning. Man has always tried to get into heaven on his own terms. Cain tried to give a sacrifice of his own. He didn't give what was required. And God gave him the opportunity. Cain, if you do it right, you know, if you bring the right sacrifice, it's going to be, we're going to be good. But no. You know, that was the first man-made religion. When Cain said, "I'm, I'm going to bring my own sacrifice. And that's what this, this man was trying to do, to get into heaven under his own, his own terms. And we can't do that. And after this sad demonstration of greed, Jesus looked around and said to him in verse 23, notice, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter into the kingdom of God. And it says the disciples were astonished at Jesus' words because riches were a sign of God's approval. And notice again what he said in the in the next part of verse twenty-four. He said, "And the after the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again, and said to them, to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. How hard it is for those who trust in the false security of their riches." And then look at verse 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The point is that in man's eyes, it's impossible for a rich man to be saved. It's like trying to put a camel through the eye of a needle, which was a dramatic way of saying what's humanly speaking is impossible or absurd. It can't happen. And still astonished, thinking that who can be saved, Jesus assured the disciples in verse 27, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. To enter into the kingdom and into eternal life is beyond man's doing. He cannot do it on his own. But in the grace of God, all men, rich and poor alike, can enter in. The admission is the admission fee into the kingdom of God it's the same for everybody rich or poor famous or not famous powerful or weak it's the same the requirement is all that any man has are you willing are you willing to give it all if I asked? Then Peter said in verse 28, oh, we've left everything, Lord, and followed you. So what are we going to get? That's that's Peter's thinking. Man, we've we've done what Jesus says. So what are we going to get for giving up all and following you, Lord? The disciples thought that their position gave them favor because, you remember, they they left their nets, they left their fishing business, they left this, they they left their their work, and and they followed Jesus. They left it all. So what are we going to get for it? Jesus saw here that Peter may have had a wrong motive for his service. You know, serving Jesus for what he might get out of it. That's a commercial faith. Lord, I'll serve you, but what am I going to get out of it? I'll do for you, you do for me. Jesus said, whatever you've lost for my sake will receive a hundredfold And when it's all over here, you'll receive eternal life. Jesus assured the disciples that what they would gain would far outweigh what they lost. And that's why he added the the, the warning that some who were first in their own eyes would be last in the judgment. And those who were last would be first. Look at verses 32 through 34 now. And here Jesus now for a third time is predicting his death and resurrection to the disciples. Verse 32. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And then he took the twelve aside again, and he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will arise. Now in verses 35 through 44, we see James and John's ambition. The paradox here, the teaching was servants shall be rulers. So let's look at verses 35 through 45. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in glory, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said, oh, we are able. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism i baptize with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. But it is for those whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard this, that is, when the other ten disciples heard this, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to Himself, and He said to them, "You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, notice, shall be your servant. And whoever your and whoever uh, And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So James and John here. Back in chapter 9, verse 33 and 35, Jesus had just taught them about humility. All right, about humility being the secret of greatness. Now, here they are wanting to know, hey, which one of us, you know, we want one on the sit on the right and one on the left. Jesus just got through predicting his death for the third time here. And they're worried about who's going to be, you know, who's going to have a, a an important spot in the, in the, in the glory, in, in the kingdom. Now, in in, in, ver, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, it tells us that James and John's mother was there with them, uh, asking for, for, for them to sit one on the right hand and one on the left of Jesus when he was in glory. But look at the answer that Jesus gives them in verse 38 through 40. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with a baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with baptism I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit, my hand, uh, sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it is for those who it is prepared. So Jesus answers them when they ask to sit at the right and they left. He says, you don't know what you're asking for, James and John. And then Jesus asks them some questions to help them better understand the kingdom of God. He asks them, are, are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering that I'm able to drink? That I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering that I'm going to be baptized with? In other words, he's asking James and John... Can you endure the trials that I'm about to go through and which are about to overwhelm me? And their response was, we're able. In time, they did. But in, to answer their, 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 their request of uh, being one on the right hand and one on the left, Jesus said, that, that's not up to me to give you that honor. Jesus implied it's merit, not favor. It's not self-seeking that gets you into the kingdom, It gives you those honors in the kingdom of God. It's for those that God has prepared it for. Places of honor and responsibility aren't given upon request. They're not given because we ask for it, but they come to those who, who are prepared uh, for those places by their qualities and their character and their spirit. Look at verse 41. And when they heard it, They began to be greatly displeased with James and John. So the other disciples get wind of these two guys trying to, you know, get up there and get important places in the kingdom. And and it upset the other ten disciples. Look at verses 42 and 45 again. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and uh, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever you, and whoever of you desires to be first, notice, shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus calls them all together to teach them his values. He tells them, you know, the Gentile rulers they 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 rule over these people with, with, with oppressive tactics, and Jesus said. Don't let this be found among you guys. Those who will be the greatest among the followers of Jesus will be one who is eager to be a minister. You'll be eager to be a servant to the people. A servant, a slave. And why should it be that way? Because 40, forty-five tells us that Jesus didn't come to serve, come to be served, but to serve, to give his life for a ransom for many. This is, what they, this, this is the way Jesus lived. Jesus didn't come to be waited on, but to wait on others. And this is the example that Jesus left for us that we should follow in his steps. Then the next teaching is in verse 46 through 52, where uh, he, heals, he heals the blind man. And, and again, the, 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 the paradox here is, is to be, to, to, uh, be poor. When you become poor, you become rich. Look at verse 46. Now they came to Jericho. As he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, uh, you know, followed with him. Blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and he came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. In Matthew 20, uh, Matthew tells us that there were two blind men that day sitting by the road, but Bartimaeus was the louder one. When he learned that Jesus was walking by, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, and he kept crying out. Then the crowd told him to be quiet, Maybe it was because, you know, he was annoying. And, you know, if somebody keeps yelling out something, you know, like Jesus and David, have mercy. He's, you know, he keeps shouting, They've defied, you know, just be quiet. You know, they got annoyed listening to him crying out all the time. But here's the neat thing. It says in verse 48, instead of being quiet, he cried, he cried out even louder. And that spoke to me. You know, when people try to shut us up about Jesus, we need to cry out louder about Jesus. We need to let them know and not let them shut us up. Then Jesus stood still and, and had the man brought to him. And they called him and they said to him, hey, look, it's okay, man. Get up. He's calling you. Jesus is calling you. And that's all Bartimaeus needed to hear, man. He jumps up, he throws off his garment, and he runs, he, he runs to, to meet with Jesus. And then Jesus asked him, Bartimaeus. What do you want me to do for you? And you know what? He still asks that question to all of us today. What do you want me to do for you? Now, this this may have sounded like a dumb question for Bartimaeus. I'm blind, Jesus. I mean, you know, what do you want me to do? What do you want me? I want you to give me my sight back. But you see, when Jesus asked him the question, Jesus wanted to give him the chance. wanted to give Bartimaeus a chance to to share what was on his heart, to express himself, and to strengthen his own faith by, by Jesus strengthening his own faith by asking him to put, you know, put his desires into his own words. And by asking Jesus, uh, you know, it got the others excited about expressing what was on their hearts, expressing their wishes and their hopes. And Jesus gave them a chance to share their faith so that then he could act on it and build upon it. Bartimaeus said, Rabboni, which means master and Lord. It's an affectionate term of reverence and respect. And he said, Jesus, give me my sight. And Jesus said to Bartimaeus, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And it says, immediately he received his sight notice and followed Jesus on the road. And that's what happens when Jesus truly opens your eyes. You follow him. You follow him literally and spiritually. And so Jesus finishes here these these five incidents where he teaches by paradox. So in closing, the healing of Bartimaeus resulted in the blind man following Jesus. It, It teaches that our healings and our blessings are to help our devotion for Christ. If Jesus blesses you with a great blessing, it's mostly to help you to follow Jesus better. And we all need to follow Jesus better. But many times we often look at our great blessings as a way to satisfy our own fleshly desires rather than improve our devotion for Jesus. When we ask for blessings, may it be that will help us to follow him closer and to follow him better. That we might be better examples of the Christian life to those around us. We we want to be better. We want to do more for Christ. But it has to come through it has to come by his terms. That means putting him first, myself last and be willing to give whatever I need to follow him and to become rich by being poor in my own cravings, my own desires, and my own wants. Father, we thank you once again for this chapter, Lord. And Father, we do pray that, God, we would we would take heed to the teachings that Jesus gave here, Lord. About marriage and divorce, God. About being servants of all. About being becoming rich by, by being poor. The first and being first if we put ourselves last. And Father, we pray that we would take your word to heart and that we would live it, God. And God, that it would prepare us for that time when we do go to eternity, Lord. And as James and John asked for those positions of honor, Lord, may we be assigned those positions of honor because of our character and the qualities of our character, God. And that Jesus would give us that honor. And that we wouldn't get it, ask for it for ourselves, Lord. What an honor that would be for Jesus to say, hey, come and sit on my right hand or my left. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you. We give you all the honor and glory. Father, we thank you for the offering that uh, we will receive today, Lord. We thank you for your generosity. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right.